is the blight of second-class citizenship. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for this time for us to gather together once again, and Lord, uh, to uh, share these hymns and to fellowship one with another, and Lord, to just hear from your word. And Father, I just pray that you would anoint our time as you have been so far already and continue to do so. And Father, uh, may we be challenged from your word. And um, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity once again. We just uh, commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Blight of Second-Class Citizenship On December 1st, 1955, now I remember what happened on that day, and when you think of the title of the message, can anybody come up with what might have happened on that day, December 1st, 1955? There's not too many of us around anymore that were there, so... uh, What, Deb? Uh, No? Is the name Rosa Parks familiar to you? (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Yes, on December 1st, 1955, a courageous young African-American woman named Rosa Parks boarded a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Now it's all come back, hasn't it? (laughs) Of course, I had the advantage. (laughs) It's all written right here. Um, And that initiated the Civil Rights Movement. Because she got on that bus and sat in the white section. There were some seats available, so that was really okay to do, but as this bus stopped at one stop after another, more whites got on, and all those seats became uh, taken. And finally, there was one more person that got on, got on, and Rosa was still sitting there, and the bus driver refused to move the bus until she got up and yielded her seat to that, that white person. And she refused and was arrested and thrown in jail, Fortunately, they bailed her out. Her friends and family bailed her out 24 hours later. And, uh, but that became a monumental moment. And she, has been, she was active in the civil rights movement intensely from that point on. The U.S. Congress eventually wound up calling her the First Lady of Civil Rights. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal, and a posthumous statue in the United States Capitol's National Statuary Hall. Upon her death in 2005, she was the first woman, not the first black woman, but the first woman to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. So what effect does the... um, but does suppression by a higher social class have upon a people? Well, it creates apathy. It creates a, creates a listlessness. 
It creates a downtrodden spirit. Uh, They are acutely aware that they have been left out. Do any of you remember being chosen on different teams when you were a kid for, for some kind of sport? Maybe it was softball or maybe it was basketball or something. And you're standing there and you wind up and the, the, the captains of the teams, the two captains, are choosing back and forth, and, you, and you're the last one standing. You know how that feels? I'm sure you've been there. That's what we're talking about here. Ah, they don't want me. That's what we're talking about. Uh, the, the suppression of people... Uh, in this condition, causes them to be generally disinterested in the society around them. Can you blame them? Because they don't want them. They shrink from having anything tangible to do with their oppressors. So where are we going with all this? Well, after I turn some lights on, we'll talk about that. Ah, there is a second-class citizenship problem within the Church of Jesus Christ, universally. Uh, It goes all the way back to the early church. We're going to see that in a moment. And it involves elevating one group of people above another. Namely, elevating the Jews above the Gentiles. Um, in 19, uh, elevating them above the Gentiles as God's primary people. In 1980, when I was saved, I was told, it's great when a Gentile gets saved. I t- told this by a, a Christian brother. It's great when a Gentile gets saved, but it's something really special when a Jew gets saved because they are God's special people. You know what that did to me? Chunk down to second-class status. Now, it's not as severe as during the Civil Rights Movement. It's not as severe as the prejudice that was happening back in those days. There's no question about that. But it has a psychological effect, nonetheless. So I was instantly second-place status. Uh, I know that, it, it, that it, it, may not have, it, it may not affect you, it depends on the individual, but I know that it affected someone else because about, I taught this about 25 years ago in Sunday school, and a lady came to tears when she realized that she was not a second-class citizen after all. So I know that it, it, has, it does have an effect. Now, in the Old Covenant, Gentiles were essentially out of the picture. And I'm sure you're aware of that. God's program was was with Israel. But we're in the New Covenant now. And, of course, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if there were a John 3.16 of the Old Covenant, it would say, For God so loved Israel. But we're in the New Covenant now. Now, I have a book at home which promotes this superiority idea. 
And I'll be talking about that sporadically uh, through our discussion this morning. So does God have favorites? Does God have favorites? We certainly don't want to degrade the Jew. They're wonderful people, and God has a plan for them. But does he have favorites? Turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6 in your Bibles this morning. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6. Galatians 2, 6, but from those who seem to be something. Now, Paul, Paul is talking here about um, uh, people who had come in and were, were influencing this church, pretending to be something uh, in the way of, of, uh, of influential among them, namely the Judaizers, which is a term that's probably familiar to most of you. And he says, but, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. In other words, he's saying, big deal. I'm not impressed. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Now, move down to verse 11. And here's the earliest instance of this, and it is early, in, in uh, the first century. Paul says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated, him, separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. James was a Jew, and those, that band of people that he was bringing with him were also Jews. So Peter was fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and when he saw the Jews coming, he withdrew from the Gentiles. Talk about choosing upsides for the baseball team, right? Here we go. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews, here's the damage now, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Can you imagine? Here's Peter fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and he and, and others withdrew with Peter. They just, the Gentiles are over here, and now they just withdrew. Oh, hi, James all the others. Now, what would your impression be of who you were in relationship to those Jews, if that were you? Verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles, and that's what he was doing before James came, he was just fellowshipping right in with the Gentiles. If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? If he withdraws from the Gentiles, the Gentiles are going to think, well, I need to be more like the Jews. 
I need to be them. That's the impression they had. Um, you know, we all have make an impression on people. We all are, are, um, are an example to people around us. doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, you're an example to someone. And Peter was just not a good example here. But it was a learning process for him. Okay, now turn to Romans chapter 2. So God shows personal favoritism to no man. And Paul withstood Peter here concerning his favoritism. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. And Paul has been addressing this church. The Roman church was, had a high Jewish uh, population in it, high, high Jewish membership. And, of course, there were many Gentiles there as well. And both Jews and Gentiles were uh, in this conflict with each other. And Paul was trying to straighten that out. And uh, part of the conflict was, Who's better than who? And in Romans 2.11, Paul says, For there is no partiality or favoritism with God. Now, in verse 17, beginning in verse 17, Paul begins to challenge the Jews individually. We're going to come back to that later. But move ahead a page or so to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Now, at this point, Paul has just finished scolding the Jews. He singled them out and he was scolding them. We're going to see what that was about a little later on. But he's speaking to the Jews, and in verse 9 he says, What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? What's his answer? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All the same. And keep in mind that regardless of Jew or Gentile, John 14, 6 still is in play. For, uh, uh, where the, where uh, Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. There's no, there's no other way. There's no different plan depending on the group of people that, that you might belong to. Okay, now, I'd like you to turn back to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to look in on the council at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 5. And it tells us here, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so these were believing Pharisees, they rose up, it says, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So that's what the council at Jerusalem was all about. Now you can understand this confusion this early on. You can understand they need to get this straightened out. 
Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's referring back to his trip to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10 for the Gentiles to begin to be brought in. Verse 8, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now look at verse 9, And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. No distinction. Not one, one group better than the other. The Gentiles aren't better than the Jews. The Jews aren't better than the Gentiles. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Talking about the attempt to drag the Gentiles back under the Old Covenant principles. Now, this book that I have claims that we are a separate body. The Gentiles are a separate body from Israel. Is this true? Turn to John chapter 10 with me. John chapter 10. The Lord is speaking to the Pharisees here. And in verse 14, this is the Good Shepherd passage. In verse 14, he says, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. So he's talking to the Pharisees, of course, of course who are Jews. And he's telling them, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. In other words, Gentiles. Them I must bring in also, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Amen? Now, flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. Concerning this, this body. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, Paul here is going to talk about a mystery. And that word mystery in the text here means um, something that is secret, that he's now going to make known. In the Old Covenant, they understood that one day the Gentiles would be included but they didn't know they would be together. That was the mystery. So as we pick it up in verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the administration of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. Now skip to verse 5 which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. There he says it again. Now, 
Let's turn our thoughts for a moment now to Abraham's seed. I told you last week, you know, we've been working on the covenants here, and last week was essentially the old and new covenants. And I told you that today we'd be dealing a little bit with the Abrahamic covenant. Those are the three major covenants in the Word of God, and it's important to understand them. Now, concerning Abraham's seed, that book of mine says, Who is the seed of Abraham? This is on page 85 of this person's book. By the way, you need to be careful what you read. This book is 600 pages long. It was written in 1960 by a professor emeritus of one of the leading Bible colleges in the country. Now, I'm, sure he, I'm, I'm certain he was a, a fine teacher, but he has a lot of things wrong in this particular area, as, as you're going to see. I'm not going to tell you who he is. I'm not interested in defaming him or anything like that. But I'm just going to give you the information here that, he, that he's attempted to put forth. Right Now, the books concerning Abraham's seed, his book says, and I quote, Who is the seed of Abraham? It would seem obvious to all who are not deliberately trying to pervert the plain teaching of Scripture that the seed of Abraham, of necessity, is the term applied to the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, we're talking about people who are, whose eternal destination is, is heaven here. The promise to Abraham was a people who, who numbered more than the sands of the sea who are going to be God's people. That's what, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But he's talking about a physical people, the physical offspring of Abraham, he says it's the term applied, the seed of Abraham is the term applied to the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, Abraham was fine, spiritually speaking, also, right? And Isaac married Rebekah. They were believers. And they begat Jacob and Esau and already we're running into trouble, aren't we? Because Jacob was, was a godly man, but Esau, you know what he did? He wound up selling his birthright for a bowl of stew, and he wound up being the father of the Edomites who refused to let Israel cross their land when they were retreating from Egypt. So already we're in trouble if we're trying to make the physical offspring of Abraham God's chosen people. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but we, we, you'll read about, in, in chapters, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, you'll read about Eli, the high priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, physical seed of Abraham. It says right in the text that Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord. They committed fornication with the women who were coming to sacrifice at the temple. And if you read on in chapter 3, you'll find out not only didn't they know the Lord, but they died in that condition. So these are not the people that, that God promised to Abraham. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is an interesting passage. Because in this passage, there's a discussion of both the physical offspring of Abraham and the spiritual offspring. And I'll help you to identify which is which as we go along, although it should be obvious. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. 
31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. So off the, right off the bat, we figure these people are believers. He says to them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Uh-oh. Now he's going to get, getting down to, the, to brass tacks with these people. Now skip to verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Insert the word physically in there, will you? I know that you are Abraham's descendants physically. But you seek to kill me. So now verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. But now obviously, they're not with him. They seek to kill him. How can, it, how can the text say that they believed him? Well, you remember in that day, they could see Jesus. Everyone could see Jesus doing the miracles that he did. And a lot of them believed in the man and the miracles that he performed. But there was no spiritual connection, necessarily. Okay, so verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father, physically, right? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Abraham was a godly man. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now when, he, when they told Jesus, we were not born of fornication, that's a, slap in, that's a slap at Jesus because they knew that Mary was with child before she was married. And, of course, didn't understand what the Holy Spirit had done there. So that was a, that was a slap at Jesus. They, were, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see the message here? Being physically descendant from Abraham means absolutely nothing. Means nothing. There are no guarantees for those people. They must come the same way we come. Through Jesus Christ and him alone. All right, now let's see what John the Baptist had in mind 
concerning this situation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. What were John the Baptist's thoughts? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now skip to verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is Jerusalem and all of Judea. These are a lot of Jewish people repenting and coming to God. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Guess who those are that he's talking to? That, are, that he suspects are not going to bear good fruit. Now, it's possible some of them repented, but this is a warning to them that if you don't bear the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to be in the fire for all eternity. All right, let's examine Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham. Turn back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. So the author of my book says that the seed of Abraham applies to the physical offspring of Abraham. Of course, as we saw, we got in big trouble with that right in a hurry, didn't we? Genesis 17. And here's the covenant. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face. Notice his name is Abram. Fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant, my agreement, my promise is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. Keep that in mind. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Abram, you know, it's, it's, it's neat to look up some of these names in your concordance and see what they mean. Abraham, or Abram means high father. Abraham means father of the multitudes. So that's why the name changed, because he was to be the father of many nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations, plural, of you. And kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. What descendants? You want to think about that. What descendants are we talking about now? Just the physical? We're going to find out here in a minute. 
And I will make my covenant between you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, here's what this author of my book didn't even think about. When he said that of necessity, you've got to realize that the seed of Abraham is the physical offspring of Abraham, that's Israel. So if that's true, the covenant can never be fulfilled because it's one nation instead of many. The author of my book threw out the Gentiles. This threw them out. So that means only one nation for, for Abraham instead of all the others now in the world where people are saved and being saved and continue to be saved. So if only the physical offspring of Abraham are Abraham's seed, that's Israel, then God's promise has failed and this covenant is null and void. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Let's find out who Abraham's seed is. Galatians chapter 3. Picking it up in verse 6. We read, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Therefore know that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. See, if the Gentiles are left out, you don't have all the nations and the covenant is null and void. In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now skip to verse 26. 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now how does this work that we as Gentiles can be Abraham's seed? Well, Jesus was Abraham's seed physically. Now he did have some Gentile blood in him. A little bit. Rahab, and if you read the the book of Ruth, Ruth and Boaz, you'll see it there too. And that's in his lineage. But he is predominantly Jewish. He went to the cross, he rose again, victorious over sin and death, and now in him we are Abraham's seed. And it's spiritually. This, this, This covenant is not about the physical. That's the old covenant. This is about the heavenly Okay, verse 26 again, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You notice the condition there? If you are Christ's. That's the condition. Now, it's interesting, these people groups. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave or free man, male or female. That covers everybody. Everybody's either a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody is either a slave or a free man. And everybody is either a male or a female. So in those three groupings, each one of them covers everyone. Doesn't matter. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now you can see, obviously, for the covenant to be fulfilled, it has to be, there have to be believers, both Jew and Gentile, in, in all the nations of the world. And there are. He's the father of many nations. Now, would Satan have an interest, would our arch enemy have an interest in this second class citizenship and promoting that in the church of Jesus Christ? So, uh, we need to be cautious with him. We don't need to fear him, but we need to be cautious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Paul is speaking of the need to forgive in this particular instance. And he warns the Corinthian church, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of his devices. Now, somehow I don't believe that the Corinthian church I believe they, they were quite ignorant of his devices. And I think Paul said this as kind of a wake-up call. Eventually, I'm sure they got it. Now, what would Satan's plan be here? Well, in Exodus, God tells Moses that he did not choose Israel to be the largest of nations, but the smallest. And that's because they were to trust in God for winning their battles and for everything else. And today, in this world, Gentiles outnumber Jews by a ratio of 500 to 1. 500 to 1. For every 500 Gentiles, there's one Jew in the world. It's been probably in that range for, for centuries, and it will probably continue to be in that range. So, if Satan could get us to elevate the 1%, or that, that one above the 500 and cause the 500 Gentile believers in that ratio, if that's the same ratio of saved people, who knows. But if he could get that majority to be downtrodden and, and, and treated as second-class citizens and become apathetic for the work of Christ, that would be a major victory, wouldn't it? A major victory. All right, now, uh, I'm going to do a bit of a, of a 180 for, on, for you, on you here. Concerning God's special people, that's all saved people, whether Jew or Gentile. But I'm going to do a 180 on you here, and I'm going to tell you that it's the Jew. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Verse 17. But who are they? It's the Jew who are God's, the Jews who are God's special people, but who are they? Romans chapter 2. 
I told you we were going to come back here to verse 17. Now the Jews in the, the Roman church here were a bit, were getting a bit uppity because, hey, this, they're just, the new covenant is just brand new and they're accustomed to being God's nation. And they had to get over that a little bit. You know, they were on a little bit of a pride trip concerning that. So Paul gets after him here. And in verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast of God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? See, he's challenging those Jews who were, who were claiming uh, their godly heritage just, just because they're Jews in the flesh. And he wasn't at all certain they were really saved. So he says, You, therefore, verse 21, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And you who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become what? Uncircumcision. Verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, that's a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as what? Circumcision. Now Paul is, is, Paul is, is getting into some new covenant theology here, which we need to get into. Verse 27, and will not the physically uncircumcised, the Gentiles, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now this will straighten out what I just said about the Jews being God's special people after all, exclusively. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, not in the letter of the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, I don't know if you remember reading this, or if you did, if you spent any time with it, but... Is Paul spiritualizing here? Is Paul kind of gone off the deep end? No, Paul is teaching the new covenant. It's not about the physical anymore. It's about the spiritual, the heavenly. And verse 28, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. What you are outwardly does not count. And we've already seen that. We've seen that in John chapter 8 with those Jews that wanted to kill Jesus. We've seen it with Eli, the priest's son, Hopni, and Phinehas. 
He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter. Not in the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So a born-again person is what kind of person in God's eyes? A Jew, right? A true Jew, whether they be physically a Jew or physically a Gentile. You may have to spend some time with this and absorb it, but that's what he said here. So, you understand what I said, that the Jews are indeed God's special people? How many here are Jews? <laughs> I hope you can all raise your hand. True Jews. This is not a fairy tale. This is not some uh, a wacky thing that Paul has just invented. This will jolt you into the new covenant. I understand that. Spend some time with it. So, this book of mine... Um, I, I don't, I can't believe that he didn't read Galatians chapter 3 about Abraham's seed. But I'm sure he did, but what he did with it, I, obviously is, is not right. So I'm very careful, and you should be very careful about what you read that is not inspired. And check it out very well. So as for me... Oops. As for me, you know, I was going to bring that book in, but I was afraid I'd toss it on the floor here, and I didn't want to do any grandstanding. But as for me, I'll, I'll believe this. Amen? All right. No second-class citizenship. You're born again. You know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whether you're Jew or Gentile in the flesh, male or female, slave or free man, you are God's special person. Peter said, what did Peter say? You are a holy nation unto God. A holy nation. 